quartet, and uh, one of his roles is playing the piano, so we're glad we're blessed by that gift that God has given you. Some time ago, <clears throat> the Lord spoke to me about preaching, and what he said was this, never preach anything on Sunday morning that is not reality to you. Now, if you're teaching a class, you may teach facts, you may teach this, but on Sunday morning, only bring that which is reality to you. When Greg's two children were small, Amanda and Casey, it was not unusual for them to spend several days a week with us. Sometimes just Amanda, sometimes both of them. Their personalities are very different. Amanda is very self-confident, sometimes rather aggressive. One time when we were driving to Neodice, Kansas to visit my uncle, Barbara and Amanda were counting hawks. And nearing the Kansas-Oklahoma border, they'd gotten to somewhere between 90 and 100. And Amanda blurted out, am I winning? No competition, we're just counting hawks. I don't like to lose. Sometimes she showed great wisdom. My first computer laptop uh, was one that was put together or set up by John McVeigh. And in those days, there was a plastic template that went across some of the top keys because they were a little different than that which they were marked. And John said, don't ever lose that template. It will cost $25 to replace it. One day, as Amanda and Casey were in our house, I went into my study and the template was gone. Casey had gotten hold of it. And we searched and searched and couldn't find it. And Amanda said, you know, sometimes when we lose things, if we pray, God shows us where to find it. Have you prayed? <laughs> so we prayed and immediately found it on a windowsill. <laughs> One time she was expounding on some topic at great length. I don't know what it was. I don't remember and I asked her a question about it, and she looked at me and she said, I just can't explain it. <laughs> this morning I'm going to talk about something that is as real to me as the hand in front of my face, but I just can't explain it. It's too deep. This past week, as I sought God, what word for Sunday? And every direction my thoughts seemed to go clearly were not that of God. But Friday, late afternoon, between four and five, I forget, maybe a little after five, as I left the Heritage Point Memory Center, having spent an hour and a half with Herb and Gigi and Barb and, and Lisa, I knew the word. God had given it to me. Here's the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, 
and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. We especially want to call attention to the phrase, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In this passage, Paul discusses the human condition of everyone who is a slave of Jesus Christ. And in spite of our human condition, we have within us a glorious treasure. Let me speak about that glorious treasure first of all. To me, as I thought about it, the first thing that came to my mind was that inscrutable truth that my resurrected life is entwined with the resurrected life of Jesus. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that it is Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What a picture. When we come to Jesus Christ and we're immersed and the old man is buried in the watery grave of Christian baptism, coming forth is, in essence, a new spiritual creature born from above. Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, notice, in Christ Jesus. We're united with Him as we come forth newly born. Not only that, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful to whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The term that is translated fellowship is koinonia, and it means a lot more than what we usually mean by our term fellowship. We're going to have a fellowship dinner, we're going to sit down and eat, and we're going to visit. But the word means more than that. It is an entwinement between two entities. As far as human beings are concerned, a mutual dependency. We've illustrated this, you heard us do it in the past, between the lungs and the heart. The heart pumps blood to the lungs. The lungs oxygenate the blood, and so it goes back to the heart. If the heart doesn't pump, the lungs die. If the lungs don't oxygenate, the heart dies. That's the sense, humanly, of kononia. But between us and Jesus, think of this. 
We are entwined with his son. We have fellowship with him. A staggering thought. I just can't explain it. But it is as real as this hand in front of my face. In a very special way, I am a child of God. Remember in the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Jesus said, unless a man, and most versions say, is born again. The Greek does not say born again. It says born from above. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wrestling with that. You mean I have to go back in my mother's womb? Jesus said, no. Unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Until the latter quarter of the 1800s, that was always understood to refer to baptism, where we receive the Holy Spirit. We enter the watery grave. We come out, as Peter said, receiving the Holy Spirit. John 1, 12 to 13. But as many as received him... To him he gave the right to be... Now, must, many of your King James Version says the power. It's not power. It's not dunamis. It's exousia. He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And the Greek word is ice, into his name, relationship. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, think about that. There's not a single person here who would ever claim to be divine like Jesus. As John 1 tells us, he is the monogenes, the unique one, only begotten, some versions say. But it really has the idea of uniqueness. The Latin word is sui generic. There's not another one like it anywhere. He is the only begotten, the sui generic, or rather the monogeneric Son of God. But isn't it striking that this says he has given us the right to become children of God. Not like Jesus. And yet scripture also speaks of the fact that we are joint heirs with him. Can you explain that? (laughs) I can't but it is as real as the hand in front of my face. Those of us who are born of the water and spirit, who have been born from above, that new birth is not by bloods, it's plural in the Greek, nor the will of man, but by the will of God. Second thing that came to my mind as I thought about this is that treasure that we have within us is the Holy Spirit, and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? Now that's a staggering thought, isn't it? My body is holy. Because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
We think of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came to the temple in Jerusalem and he saw many profane things going on there and was so stirred there was anger. He drove out the money changers. He drove out those that were selling doves and so on. You know the situation. The priests who ran the temple said everybody has to pay a temple tax and we won't accept anything as temple tax except a shekel. But shekels had been out of circulation for years and they collected all of them to themselves. And so if you came to the temple to worship and to make your offering and to pay the temple tax, you had to go to a money changer who was an agent of the priest and buy with denarii buy a shekel and then you could take the shekel and the priest would give it back and sell it again and again and again. The temple for profane purposes had become a place of merchandising. Doves. To bring a dove for an offering, the priest said, we're happy to receive the dove, but only if it's one bought from one of our salesmen. It's happy to receive a lamb, but only one bought from our flocks right on the hills. Our Lord was so disturbed because the temple was being used for profane things. He drove them out with a whip. <laughs> Even as it is wrong, was wrong to use that temple of Jerusalem. It is wrong to use this temple for anything that in God's eyes is profane. These hands are God's hands. These feet are God's feet. This tongue is God's tongue. Let my tongue speak nothing that is displeasing to him. No place for cursing or blasphemy. Oh my, should I ever use my hands to hurt somebody? Should I ever use my tongue to hurt somebody? May it never be. I can't explain it. (laughs) But this is holy. What a staggering thought. The third thing that strikes my mind as I think about this treasure is that because the Holy Spirit is in me as a treasure, I am guaranteed a place in the great resurrection and I will spend eternity with our Lord. Colossians 1, or rather 2 Corinthians 1, 22, who has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the term seal that is used here in what some lady uses when she is canning and uses to seal a Kermason jar. (laughs) But rather, it is what 
anyone who had possessions carried with them and marked those possessions. It was their seal they put upon it. If, if you wrote a letter, you'd put wax at the bottom and with your seal, put your mark on it and somebody got it, they knew it was from you. Other sermons, we've talked about this as if it were a brand. Like cattlemen brand their cattle and we wondered in the resurrection will there be a bunch of angelic cowboys, yup, get over here, yup, get over there, separating those with God's brand and those don't. <laughs> it's the brand. Because I have that brand. When the day of redemption comes, oh, glory be to God, I can't explain it. But I will rise and spend eternity with him. What a glorious thought. And so there comes that certainty of hope. The Greek word elpis means hope. It doesn't mean wish. I hope this happens. It means it's, it's really a synonym for certainty. I am certain this will happen. Paul wrote to the Romans in 5.5, 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then there's that matter of inner guidance. You know, we sing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Isn't that a great song? And the third line goes like this. Pardon for peace. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own presence to cheer and to guide. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Oh, I don't know how many times in my life that guidance has come when I've needed it. I've learned over the years that when I'm facing a, a, a serious decision about my life or when I'm in a role where a decision for the church is involved, which I'm rarely in that role now, but I used to be, to never make a move until I hear from God. Some of you have heard me illustrate this by picturing a chalkboard and taking a wet rag and wiping it clean and handing God the chalk and say, please write and don't make a move until he does. And it requires faith to patiently wait till he does when sometimes everybody is saying, why aren't you doing something? More often than not, it has been that still, small voice that I could overlook more easily than I can hear it. I don't know how many times I've been on the floor where that piano is today. In the days when I was in the place of having to make decisions about what we're going to do as a church. And that still, small voice would speak so quietly with other things on my mind it would come and I would know this is the will of God his guidance but you know even in small things last Tuesday 
I was repairing a light fixture in the what's called Tom's office. Didn't need bulbs, tried that, didn't work. <laughs> Had to have a ballast replaced. And so here was the old magnetic ballast that was shot. And so I was installing a new electronic ballast. Now electronic ballast has two blue wires, two red wires, two yellow wires, a black wire, and a white wire. Wired totally differently than with the magnetic ballast. And you hook two red wires to this, what I would call tombstones, that's what they look like, where you stick the fluorescent bulb, and you hook two red ones, two blue ones to this one. Then on the other end, with the two yellow ones, you hook a yellow one that goes to both, and the other yellow wire goes to both, and of course the black to power and the white to neutral. Well, because I was working alone, and I prefer to work alone because if I make a mistake, I uncover it before anybody catches on. So I had two ladders, one at each end, and I'd go up this one and up down that one, up down that one, and I hooked this end. Instead of two red wires, I hooked a blue and a red one to this receptacle, and I was coming down off the ladder just as clear as a bell. The Lord said, Jim, what did you just do? <laughs> Oh, my. I quickly corrected it. On the other end, I, I'm, it's amazing how God stopped me. Now, nothing would have been wrong. It just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I don't know how many times in life, whether working on a car, working on plumbing, doing electrical work, whatever, <laughs> when I'm involved in something I have never seen before and I'm trying to figure it out so I can fix it, I want to tell you the Holy Spirit has directed me. I can testify to that. Can't explain it. <laughs> but it is as real as this hand before my face. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What about the earthen vessel? It makes no difference how dedicated to God we might be, how seriously we approach living this life for the Lord. Every one of us lives out this life in the midst of our human condition. It was Moses' human condition that as they approached the promised land after 40 years of leading the people through the wilderness by God's guidance, of course, Scripture says, His eyesight was not dim, nor his natural force abated. But he also said, I just can't go about like I used to anymore. I'm worn out. <laughs> and so God led him to the top of Mount Nebo where he could not enter but look over and see the promised land which he would never enter. And he died, and God buried him, and only God knew his sepulcher. His human condition made him say, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm worn out. The human condition was seen when David and his men were hungry and had no food, and they came to the tabernacle. And they ate the holy shoe bread. <laughs> Their human condition demanded something be done. 
the human condition was seen when Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain one day, and they were hungry, (laughs) and as they walked along, they started taking the tops and just chewing on them like we might eat popcorn in a picture show. Pharisees said, horrible, your men are working on the Sabbath. Jesus said, no, they're hungry. Human condition. (laughs) Human condition was seen in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said to the disciples, you pray here while I go over yonder. And he came back and they were all sound asleep. (laughs) And Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of you fall asleep praying? (laughs) It's the human condition. Human condition was seen when Paul, writing to Timothy, recognizing this young disciple who was faithfully serving God, was a man who lived with infirmity. Paul said, Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. (laughs) Epaphroditus whom the Philippians sent to visit Paul when he was in prison. They sent money to help him. And Paul wrote back to them, and he said, Epaphroditus became sick. He was close to death. He didn't die, but it was his human condition. It was the human condition that caused Paul to have to leave Trophimus, Sick at Miletus. Isn't it interesting how the word of faith doctrine just doesn't work? (laughs) And it was the human Galatian that as Paul was traveling, he got sick and had to stop in Galatia. The Galatians would never have received the gospel if Paul hadn't got sick and had to stop and spend time there. His human condition. Every single one of us in this building lives within a human condition. (laughs) I'll tell you sometimes now at 87 years of age, when I'm going up and down stairs, my knees strongly rebuke me. Why are you doing this? It's my (laughs) human condition. But also the human condition is this, as Hebrews says, it is accounted unto men once to die. It makes no difference whether or not you are the wealthiest man in the city of Oklahoma or a homeless person wondering where your next meal is coming from, living in an alley, you'll die. It makes no difference whether or not you're the holiest person that ever walked the streets of this city or the most debauched sinner that anyone has ever seen. Both will die. It makes no difference whether you be the governor of the state and well-known perhaps throughout the world or some nobody who lives alone and is totally unknown. You will die. That's the human condition. And are we ready? One serious thing Paul talked about is his human condition was a war between his soul 
and his spirit. Perhaps when you were in school, you learned the poem, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, and the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not always as they seem. Dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. Now, the sense is true, but the words are wrong, because when you die, your soul dies. When we were studying Genesis, you remember that every time God brought forth any life that depended on breath, it was called a living soul. Both Hebrew and Greek make a difference between the soul and the spirit. The soul is the life that we live in, in this world. My, we talk to somebody, he's a very soulish person. We means it is human emotions, all that's going on in his mind. The Greek word is uke. The word for spirit is pneumatos, and there's the same difference in the Hebrew. When I die, my soul dies, but my spirit doesn't. You see, my soul isn't who I really am now that I'm in Christ. Who I really am is the spirit. I can't explain it, <laughs> but it is real. When God, you know, I've said, Lord, let me come home, and Jesus keeps saying no. <laughs> but when he one day says yes, and this body, this soul dies, in time, the soft tissue, including my brain and everything related to my soul, will decay and go away. But my spirit will be with Jesus. Today, my wife's spirit is with Jesus. Today, Gigi Jordan's spirit is with Jesus. And we could go down the list of all of our brothers and sisters in this church whom we used to embrace on Sunday morning, sometimes even a kiss on the cheek. Today, their chair is empty. But their spirit is with Jesus. I can't explain it, but it's real. May God be praised.